discussion on Christianity and the arts. Um, just pray that you would uh, continue to uh, help us uh, discern how best to um, navigate this intersection. Uh, we thank you so much for the gift of the arts that we've been able to explore together. Uh, we pray that you'd help us appreciate them more and, and, and see your, and, and help be able to use them in a way that it draws us closer to you, that it helps us appreciate the beauty of your world and the beauty of your creation um, and, and give us wisdom. And, and with all the technology I'm using today, I pray that it would all work. And if not, help us to still have good discussion anyways. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about music. Elvis Costello, he said that writing or talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, music is much better experienced than talked about. It's hard to talk about it. But it's one of the most powerful media that humans have at their disposal. So I'm going um, to have a guy named Jeremy Begbie do most of the talking today. Jeremy Begbie is a professor at Duke Divinity School as well as in Cambridge. He's a classically trained pianist. Um, but also, you know, a seminary-trained theologian. Um, and so his, his passion is thinking about theology and music and how we as Christians should think about music in general. Um, I'm going to play um, uh, in, uh, about 25 minutes of an interview that he had on a podcast, and, um, and then I'm going to play two kind of six or seven minute clips of him giving a speech at like a, a bigger gala. And it's cool because he'll talk about music and then he'll sit down on the piano and he'll play. Like he'll kind of talk while he's playing and give examples of what he's teaching. So that'll be fun. He's very good at the piano. Um, he's going to make he's gonna make a couple comments about evolution in this podcast episode that I think most of you are going to disagree with. Um, so I'll just ask you to lovingly look past that for now and see how helpful he is in many other ways. Just wanted to give that warning. And bonus points if you can figure out what, the, what, what, eth, what um, nation of the accent the moderator has. It's a, it's a fun accent. And sorry if any advertisements come up while it goes. It's just a YouTube video. And so there may be ad, an, an ad that comes up. And hopefully not, but we shall see. All right, so this is the moderator. This is not Jeremy, but you'll see him very shortly. And they're talking about a book he came out with a while ago called Resounding Truth about music and Christianity. And, um, next, I'd love to just look at some of your written work today. So sure. I have the book behind me here, Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music, many themes of which you've built on over the years. And you have many excellent books, but we'll look at this one. So can you, first of all, can you give us a brief synopsis of this book and <laughs> what makes it distinct from others out there? Huh. Well, it was meant to be a study of the way Christians have thought about what music is. So it's not a history of music. It's a history of the way Christians have tried to place music in a Christian worldview. That's what it was doing. So it, it is historical, at least the first part is historical. It traces key characters who struggled with asking, as Christians, what is music and why does it matter? The agenda, as it were, is that up until about huge generalization, up until about 1500 or so, the dominant way of thinking about music for Christians was to think of music as 
tapping into the cosmic order. Music turned into sound, the glorious mathematical, rational order of the universe. So music wasn't just something you did in your head, and it wasn't something you kind of imposed on the world. It was much more a matter of listening to the way the world is, to the way that world is itself musical. Tapping into that and then making music out of that. That's that I call the great tradition in the book, the kind of cosmological tradition. It goes back to Pythagoras, it was taken up by Plato. It gets baptized into the Christian church through uh, Augustine and a character called Boethius in the early church. And then it takes taken into the medieval era right the way through the medieval era into the Renaissance. All right, so insofar as people thought about what music is in Christian terms, that would be the tradition. Uh, you might know Tolkien's Silmarillion, the, the opening of that is a kind of a similar thing, a kind of cosmic music. Uh, a picture of the world is musical, the cosmos is musical, and sounding music, music we listen to, as a way of tuning into that. With the advent of the Renaissance and what's called the early modern period, that's 1500 to about 1700, that changes pretty dramatically. And people begin to lose confidence that they are set in a world that it is that is ordered and um, uh, a trustworthy. And more and more music becomes a way of um, creating something yourself. It becomes much more about the self-imposing order on the world rather than listening to that order. Uh, music becomes much more like a language of the emotions in which we as well communicate with each other, irrespective of the physical world around us. So it becomes kind of humanized. I call it a switch from the cosmological to the anthropological. And that move is, is, is never reversed. That's, that's where we're at at the moment. There are a number who still want to speak about music as embedded in a bigger order, but they're relatively few, in, particularly in the musicological world. And so this book was a way of saying, look, let's set music in a, in a biblical vision or wider cosmic order, and let's re-explore what that might mean so that we can see music as both something we create, yes, but perhaps even more profoundly, a matter of discovering something that's out there, an order, a beauty, a harmony that's already out there before we got anywhere near um, making any music. That's the agenda. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. And um, what then have been some of the, the pitfalls, perhaps, uh, for you writing at this intersection between theology and music <laughs> and trying to transcend those um, maybe one-sided traditions? It's a good question. Many pitfalls. Um, <laughs> do you mean uh, uh, objections I've had from people or difficulties that I've encountered myself? Either or. Either or. Okay. Um, <laughs> music is very hard to speak about. Very hard. Um, it's very hard to say quite why we like it or quite what we get out of it. It's virtually impossible to translate into words a piece of music and very hard to speak about about what it is and why it moves you and what it means to you and all the rest of it. We can have a go, but usually it's just better sort of listening to the music. That's the first pitfall, that if you're dealing as, as I'm a theologian, um, you deal largely in words 
and which is fine. And, uh, you know, God gives us words, for goodness sake, language is a great thing. But you, you, certainly, you soon learn the limits of language to speak about music and its impact upon us. So that's the first kind of challenge. I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge. People will always speak about music. And I think we're meant to speak about music. But one of, one of its, it's not just a frustration, but one of its glories is that music does its own kind of thing in its own kind of way. It has commonalities with language, it has overlaps, but actually it does nonetheless operate in a, in a musical way and not primarily a verbal language-like way. And that's, that's a big challenge. I think it's very important for Christians and theologians to recognize that because what music is reminding us is there's some, there's some patterns in this world and order in this world world that we can't easily verbalize but which god nonetheless has given and which glorify him so i don't know a piece of oh gosh it could be anything a piece of bach or jazz or whatever uh can glorify god even without words it can speak of god's beauty it can speak of god's holiness it can speak of god's order it can speak of god's faithfulness it can even speak of god's reconciling work it can do all these things without actually speaking any words and it's and that's a, that's a very good thing to be reminded of god's given us many many media uh, through which to glorify him i think that's probably the main pitfall the other the other pitfall is i think people often think music is something very trivial i mean gosh here we are we're in a pandemic where uh, we've got poverty in many parts of the world we've climate change or whatever uh, how could you possibly people say to me or they don't say to me because they're too polite usually <laughs> they, they they'll think hey why are you bothering with something that is of no consequence in the long run and then you've just got to remember a few things number one okay those very people they go home and what do you find on their walls of cds what do you find a playlist of two or three hundred items which they've spent money on yeah uh what else do you find? You find evolutionists remind you that people were singing before they were speaking. They'll remind you that in every culture, however poor, however poverty is whatever crisis they're in, they'll sing of the main music. It's easily as universal as language. And some would say more primordial, more kind of original historically than language. So it's not a trivial matter, but we live in a culture that sort of tells us it's it, the arts, you know, music, particularly kind of trivial stuff, you know, let's do something serious. Mm -hmm. So what I've tried to do over 20 or 30 years now is get it on the agenda of, of uh, those who might just want to kind of dismiss it as I think it has a great deal to tell us and a great deal to teach us, uh, which is not surprising considering how basic it is to being human. Yeah, excellent. Amen to all that, Jeremy. Thank you. And um, in the book, well, I see you have a piano behind you, Mark. I mean, this is also symbolic. I mean, do you actually play that instrument? A little bit, but it's mainly my sister now. She's teaching me some, but she's the great. Um, well, I'm sure you'll play something on a podcast eventually. There'll be a, there'll be rapturous enthusiasm for your, <laughs> your piano playing. <laughs> yeah, and um, in the book, then, Jeremy, you describe music and action and. Uh, how technology and other facets inform how we understand and appreciate or maybe mm. converse of music. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that and some of those intersections? Well, if, uh, one of the very big 
emphases of the book is to think about music not so much as an object, but as something that we do. It's an action before it's anything else. Uh, Christopher Small is a good writer of music. He speaks about musicking rather than music. Uh, we make music and we hear it or listen to it. Those are the two basic actions that I speak about. And ultimately that's what music is. It's music doesn't, well, you could, it has a score and so on, but it's very hard. It doesn't sort of take form outside making it and receiving it or, or hearing it. Uh, unlike a painting, say, which you can hang on a wall. You can't hang a bit of music on the wall. You've got to hear it or play it. Technology I mentioned particularly because that has changed the way we practice music, but also the way we think about it. What te technology has done is it's made it possible to have musical sounds apart from the people who make it. <laughs> Which if you think about it in, I don't know, 1800, the only way you would hear music is if you saw someone play it or sing it, or you played it or sing it yourself. It, it, sounds were never detached from the music maker and the music here. What's happened, of course, and particularly with the invention of the headphones, incredibly important invention, you now have your private world, which you can control, that you can turn on this music anytime, quite apart from whoever originally played it, composed it, performed it or whatever, and you don't have to play a note yourself. All you have to do is switch whatever it is on. And that's changed the way that we think, a lot of ways we think about music. We think about music much more as a commodity, something to buy and sell. Um, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing, but it's a very different, a very different way of understanding music. Now, just to, one particular important consequence is about the only place that people will sing together now is in the church. Football stadium, maybe. Um, Lots more community singing groups getting set up, Gareth Malone's, all his experiments, whatever. So you've got some pockets of activity. But singing together was so, so basic to so many cultures before modern European culture and before the recording industry came and is still basic to so many cultures. In this culture, it is much, much rarer to sing together. Um, evolutionary theorists, again, show us that singing together was very, very basic part of the primitive human mm -hmm. practice so, uh, and a very important way of bonding people and pulling people together. We don't do that anymore, but we do do it, at least outside COVID, we do it in the church. Yeah. And, and that I think is very significant, very important. Um, I'm all for choirs uh, up and, and worship bands, that's fine, but how about a congregation that sings? If if you've really experienced congregation of, I don't know, 150, 200, whatever, really singing, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. And we're losing a lot of that in a lot of churches, I think. Yeah, lamentably so. And uh, as I was saying to you before we came online there, my fiance is from Zimbabwe and she's oh, a, a Methodist background. And she'd oh, tell you yeah. that it's worlds apart in Africa than it is here. Absolutely. And congregations are all involved and the life that it offers you. And, and um, very often in places like that, they will naturally sing in harmony, mm -hmm. as we will tend only because we're just used to singing melodies and get someone else to do some accompaniments or something. If you sing, this it struck me in, in South Africa, I remember visiting, whenever we sang the, the, uh, the national anthem, uh, which, is a, which is a British, actually.
Victorian tune of all things. They'll never <laughs> sing it tune plus accompaniment. You were instantly singing in harmony from the beginning. It would be unthinkable not to make harmony, interestingly enough. I think that's uh, very significant. And yes, people will naturally, naturally sing, but they'll also naturally move with the music. That's, that's another thing we've tended to forget in, in this culture, is the idea of the listener who doesn't move to music. It's, it's, it's a very rare thing in the history of the human race. By far the majority of music making has gone with bodily movement, with dance or swaying or clapping or whatever, because it's the way that one of the ways music gets to us is through our bodies. So that's another strange, strange thing. And people in church, you know, singing absolutely static and not moving. It's, it's I'm not necessarily wrong, but there's something very strange about that culturally and historically. Yeah. Anyhow, just some thoughts. No, thank you, Jeremy. And then um, what are some of the steps alongside what you're saying there, I suppose, if it's not, if you haven't already covered it, that we might take in order to go beyond this consumerism and mm. propaganda and rethinking music and reacting music um, in its proper context from a distinctly Christian perspective as you're hinting at there? Yeah. Um, the quick answer is education. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to help each other think about what music is doing to us and what it does for us. We need people to help us expand our range of musical vocabulary, say in worship. I, I'm not. That's not about elitism, or that's that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking simply about the sheer variety of things that music can do say in worship uh very often you know we narrow music down to about three or four moods at the most in music and worship and then you read the bible or the psalms you realize it's like a lot more there or you go to a film a great film composer and you see that composer skillfully bringing out all sorts of particularly emotional nuances vast variety through a whole variety of musical techniques john williams or any of the or you know, Simmer or any of the, the great writers. Um, we, so it's it's about educating us and educating each other as Christians as to what music can do. I have a quick prep for that. We're trying to do a little of that, of course, at Duke and in, um, here in Cambridge and other places. But I think that's that's one thing. Very practical step is indeed within churches and within worship to learn to sing together again and indeed to speak to to speak about openly about what this music is doing or not doing and and why it moves us and why it changes us and why we choose this piece in our playlist and not that or why this or that attracts us one of the things in in my classes on theology music in, in at duke i say at the first session i say the one one thing you're not allowed to say in the class for the next 13 weeks is I like it or I don't like it. Because then we tend to we tend to squeeze everything down to the taste question as if okay, I'm, I'm, I, no, I like things and dislike them. So there's not a sin to like or dislike, but it's very small minded, it seems to me, to think that that's the be all and end all of all talk about music or, or the arts. I like that picture. I don't like that picture. End of story. I mean, suppose we'd said that about Rembrandt. Well, I like him, don't like him. That that's it. No, the, the Christian has to ask, what's going on here? 
and what might I have to learn? How does this painter, composer, artist, sculptor, whatever, uh, expand my vision of the world and help me learn more about Christ and the world that was made in and through him? Then you're curious. You're not just, you don't just ask the taste, the consumer question. You get curious. Uh, and then you start reading the Bible differently. You think, gosh, oh, there's some things in the Bible here that just kind of put different questions to what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. That the, 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 the taste question will never get you to. And the, and the interesting thing is, by the end of the course, very often, they find themselves liking, or disliking perhaps, but liking a heck of a lot more than they thought they did. Or that they find a heck of a lot more music speaks to them. I mean, we got a we got a guy in the last class I taught who's a kind of hip hop fanatic, and he's had two and a half hours absolutely enthusing about hip hop and trying to rescue it from its very negative kind of image. I think he he didn't convince everyone, but he convinced an awful lot to take it seriously, and for Christians to see at least in some of this a kind of modern version of the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of protest. And that, that was a real education for us. That we are, um, oh boy, the wide, the minds were widened there. No longer could you just say, I don't like it, I don't want to listen to it. You gotta ask, what's going on here? Who's making this music? Why are they making it? What's being said? And now, and then, yes, you might ask some assessment or evaluative questions or taste questions. Mm, that's fantastic. Thank you, Jeremy. And um, even from my own experience, I think I went the other way. I had thought, say, Terence Malick's movies, oh, yeah. the music and everything, and that was too maybe highbrow for, for me at one stage. But now my friend got me into Malick, and they're really um, magnificent films, I think, and convicting, and yeah, sure, those things that no no other filmmaker that I've ever seen does, and um, right. goes way beyond the kind of question, the small questions that we have to. I think it's right. And, um, yeah, so I mean, I he's, a, he's an interesting sub. I think what he does, Mark, which is what a, a good, any good composer or musician is, is he slows you, he slows you down and doesn't give you everything you want immediately. So you don't get the package or the action or the, the murder or the what, it, you don't get it all thrown at you. He makes you wait. And actually, I found Tree of Life almost too long. <laughs> um, but, but I was down to sorry. talk to my doctor about rebelsis. But I'm so used to to half hour or maybe hour, hour and a half action segments of film. The idea that you might just have to wait for something to happen. Yeah. And in the process of waiting, you're made to look much more carefully at, I don't know, well, in trees or grass or whatever. Yeah. And indeed, the music that goes over that helps you do that. That that's it slows you down. So you're asking, what's going on? Run. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I like it or don't like it or don't understand it or whatever. Now I think you're right. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that people would might dismiss as highbrow that they realize after a bit. Oh gosh, there's something I could kind of. Once they get past the cultural sort of barriers that often you get with music. Yeah. Hey, maybe there's something to learn from this. Yeah. That's certainly been my been my experience. I was trained as a classical musician, and which I in that tradition I adore, but I have been pulled out of that tradition in all sorts of ways by people who are very highly trained and highly um, 
uh, nuanced and expert in their own fields. Mm -hmm. uh, Christians who've made me think way outside that particular box. Anyhow, far away. Yeah, well, thank you, Jeremy. And um, I'll be doing an interview now in a few weeks with uh, Robert Gordon, who's written the history of Stacks records too. And whenever right. I, I mentioned the idea to him, he he couldn't see in his own mind the why uh, as a somebody looking at Judeo-Christian themes that I would be interested specifically in his book. And yeah. it made me think if only he knew Jeremy Bentley's work, you there know, you let me see that it applies across the board, highbrow, lowbrow, so on. But um, I want to take it back then next, Jeremy, if we may, to biblical times and sure. ask you a bit about, I know we're covering a, a long period there even, but what was the character of music and its reception back hmm. in biblical times? And how do we know some of that? Well, the trouble is we don't have recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, and second, we don't have anything written down. The music was not notated in that tradition or indeed in the West until about 800, 900 AD. So for hundreds of years, no one wrote the stuff down. So, so how do we know? Well, what it was like, well, various indications in scripture. And also we know quite a bit about Jewish chant that uh, Christian music arose out of and was almost certainly, it was, it was a, a chant in say in Old Testament times now, what does that mean? It means that uh, in the Temple of Solomon, say, uh, and, and right through early Christian worship too, you singing would be uh, a single line of notes. It's called monody. It wouldn't be in harmony. You wouldn't be making chords. You would be singing one line of notes. It would probably follow the rhythms of speech very closely. So it'd be something like what some people known as Gregorian chant or the kind of chant that used to get in Roman Catholic churches and parish churches more than you do now. Um, where, where, when you chant a psalm over, over two or three notes, uh, you sometimes spread syllables over a few notes, uh, but, but largely it's fairly, it's fairly even, it's stretched out, it's um, all in unison though, it's all in unison as far as we know. Instruments seem to certainly to have been used. We don't know exactly what they played. There were plenty of percussion instruments, and of course there's a harp and trumpet and so forth. The trumpet is used to kind of announce, amongst other things, announce God's presence. But we don't know if there were tunes or anything that we would recognize as, as tunes. Perhaps there were. Some people have claimed to kind of unearth what it really sounded like and produce CDs and so on. But that's, it's pretty speculative um, that we don't know. When music does eventually get written down in the West about 800, 900 AD, uh, again, it's a single line of notes and it soon around that time gets very florid. That is, you might get a single syllable that's stretched out over many notes. Uh, and then the, the great change happens when someone says, well, let's sing a line of notes under those notes. Mm -hmm. At first they're in parallel and then they start going in different directions. And then you add another voice and then you've got something called polyphony. There's many voices, but that's a late development. In biblical times, that doesn't seem to have happened. But in biblical times, music was clearly, as Paul makes clear in, in Ephesians and Colossians, to a way in which people uh, could unite together in church. It was obviously had a strong unifying power. It was also a way in which they encouraged one another in both Ephesians 
particularly in Ephesians, and I think in the Colossians 3 passage, in Ephesians 5, it talks about addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so you have this extraordinary idea that your singing was a way in which you, so to speak, taught each other or reminded each other of things. Now that sounds maybe a little bit strange because when you ask people today, who are you singing to? They usually say God. But if you actually look at a songbook or a hymn book, at least half of an average collection will be addressed to each other and not directly to God. Mm -hmm. Oh, come all ye faithful. Um, crown with many crowns. That's not addressed to God. Uh, all those, those hymns that start, oh, come let us. We're saying to each other, we're encouraging each other. And that's very, very in line with Ephesians and with Colossians as well. It's, it's, we, we're not never meant just to sing and enjoy our own kind of private space with God. That's not the point. Congregational singing is about being together, being very aware of each other. And if you can, encouraging each other. There's a church I go to in the States quite often, Presbyterian church, as it happens, uh, where I, I will always go and sit in the one of the front pews, two or three front pews. And the reason for that is because it's a large church, a lot of people, wonderful people. And when they sing, the sound is so encouraging. And uh, on Sunday mornings, I can sometimes feel a bit down. I, I'm sure you never have these problems, Mark. You know, I'm sure you live in a, in a state of constant ecstasy. Some, some more human, human people get down from that and they actually arrive on Sunday. They don't feel like worshipping. We've just got a record. Many people don't want to worship when they come. Uh, majority, maybe not, but there are always some like that. Some very, very down with you know, people going through horrific things. And they get planted in this song. And though they may not have the energy to sing themselves, here the great communion of saints carries them along. That's, that's a wonderful experience when it well, works well. Uh, in, in my own church, we have in the, in the liturgy, a great line as they're coming up to sing, holy, holy, say we therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we praise him. I'm gonna switch to a different thing um, now to just give a little bit more of a flavor of, of some of his teaching. Jeremy Begbie, I teach at the Divinity School. My original professional training was in music and I'm interested in the intersections between music and faith and music and theology. Not so long ago, I was asked to play some piano music before a wedding service at a church near Duke. The idea was to create an atmosphere of quiet expectation as the congregation gathered. But as the congregation grew, so did the noise level, exponentially. This lot just wouldn't stop talking. The louder I played, the louder they got. I tried everything from Bach to bebop, but nothing would get this crowd of hyper-talkative American Presbyterians to shut up. Until I thought, hmm, well, shall I risk it? total silence. <laughs> I could only assume that I was tapping into something deep in their psyche, some primal memory of a home that they'd long forgotten, half-remembered British accents, green summers, country gardens, going downstairs to tell the servants off, going upstairs to take your hat off, 
and the music was putting them in touch with their inner colonial, their, in their Englishness. What a wonderful experience that was. Ray has been talking about stories. He's been saying, if you want to tap deep into the patient, listen to the stories. Stories help us see, hear, express, and understand experience. I want to give you a kind of musical take on that and argue that music helps us see, hear, express, and understand experience. If you want to get at what makes someone tick, if you want to find out what's going on, if you want to understand a congregation before a wedding, if you want to get in touch with the inner Englishness of an American, try playing music. Don't ask them about biology. Play some music. Music also works by telling stories, but not in words, rather in notes or tones, in pitch sounds that dance and jostle with each other in songs and symphonies. Ray's been saying that there's a kind of basic story behind all stories, or most stories. And the same goes for music, or at least the kind of music we know best. The type of music we know best, flower in the late, or actually early 17th century, and it's usually called tonal music, or Western tonal music, and it surrounds us today in shopping malls, in restaurants, in radios, uh, indeed, whether it's Beethoven or bebop, or folk rock, R&B, hip-hop, or trip-hop, it's Western tonal music. And there's a kind of basic story underlining this kind of music. And surprise, surprise, it's shaped very like the one Ray's been telling. Let's try to hear it. How did you wake up this morning? Did you need an alarm to wake you up? How many people woke up with an alarm? Some people did, but not everyone. Okay, well, you can imagine yourself asleep, and suddenly, suddenly, very early in the morning, perhaps, it goes off, and you ram your hand down all over the bedside table to try to find the button sh shoving off whatever you read, in, like um, the collected works of Richard Broadhead or whatever you had at <laughs> the side. And eventually, your sleepy hand finds the right button. Tension, resolution. One of the most basic psychological patterns governing our lives. From traffic lights on red to traffic lights on green, from nerves before the dentist to relief when it's all over. From sounds like this to sounds like that. If you hear this in this culture, you expect, want, desire that. To a set of Mozart, if he heard this, even if he was asleep and two stories up, he'd wake up, run all the way downstairs just to play that because he couldn't bear that unresolved. And writing Western music is about handling the dynamic space between that, or sounds like it, and that. It all depends how you resolve your tensions. And as your therapist will tell you, there are many ways of resolving your tension. One of the most interesting is this device, and it's called an appoggiatura. That first little note is dissonant with the chord underneath, and it's quickly resolved. Here's another one. Barber. Do you recognize that? Barber adagio for strings. Here it comes. That's an appoggiatura. John Sloboda of Keele University, a very distinguished music psychologist, done a lot of research on the appoggiatura because he's found that over and over again in music that people say moves them very deeply, you will find a preponderance of appoggiaturas. 
Shake this one. Thank you. Boy, they take a bit of warming up, don't they? <laughs> There's an appoggiatura. Here's another. Now, I'm going to take out these appoggiaturas. I'm going to fillet them out, all right? So we're just left with everything but appoggiaturas. Would you buy it? Would you know that in 40 years? I changed only two little notes. But that's only one kind of tension resolution. There are many others, and the cumulative effect of all these is to pull you forward. You want or desire the next sound, or any number of sounds, in the future. And what could be more appropriate than for this event? All right, a little bit more on that. Uh, he elaborates on a little bit more four ways music. Music, I think, not only helps us hear, express, and understand experience, it also reshapes it. Music forms us, shapes us, and sometimes, indeed often perhaps, for the better, in at least four ways. First, it reshapes you by combining dissonance with hope. This tension in the middle can be quite mild, but it can also be mild. It can also be fairly dissonant. Music takes you into some dark places. Ray reminds us that pain and death can be very hard to talk about, but music often speaks where words fail. Mm. Ray mentioned the film Amadeus, a movie which begins with the opening of Mozart's Requiem, written just before Mozart died. so much pathos being packed into 30 seconds. Virtually every chord, as it happens, is in the minor mode, which generally people will experience as more dissonant than, say, the major. In that introduction, there's only two major chords. All the rest are minor. But perhaps more important, it's laden, this music, with appoggiaturas. Did you hear them? Here's another one. And here's a very poignant one, which you don't expect. You hear that? Which resolves onto another one. Just a bit of sunlight. And here's another one. generates a barely contained sense of, it's very trite to say it, but emotional pain. I say barely contained, but it is contained, and that's the point. The constantly resolving tensions create a forward drive, 
and underneath we have the steady pulse of the bass line itself creating these waves. of tension and resolution, yet another level in which that's happening. Music can scoop into the darker depths of life, so to speak, without losing its sense of direction and purpose. And that way it can help reshape your experience and disappointment and illness and loss. And that's why we play such music at funerals. And it's one of the reasons, of course, why as a theologian I'm especially interested in music, because the Christian hope is founded not on some escapism, but on the conviction that God has entered the very worst that life can throw at us in order to promise a future worth living for. Second, music reshapes us by making us wait in the midst of delay. I could take this and resolve it straight away, or I could hold it back. Should we delay again? Yeah. Should we delay again? <laughs> yes, church organists get used to doing this when the pastor doesn't turn up in time. <laughs> and eventually he turns up and we can resolve. That's known as deferred or delayed gratification. And there's some lovely examples all over music like this. Do you recognize that? What's it called? Fury It's the piece you played just before you gave up the piano. Okay? <laughs> now, what does Beethoven do? He does this. Well, he could do this. If he was an ordinary composer. And everything everybody needs and symmetrical, 416, 32, 64. But he doesn't. Because he's Beethoven. just puts in an extra bar there, and that's why you gave up the piano. It's actually a hard piece. Deferred gratification. When the resolution is delayed or deferred. Great example in John Coltrane's Love Supreme that many of you will know. But you're made to wait about 20 minutes. Of course, if you listen to an opera of Wagner, you're made to wait about four and a half hours. Uh, but this is the point, that the waiting need not be empty or void. You are enriched in the waiting. Hope lives in the midst of delay. I'm not saying anything as crass as delay is always good for you. Many of you here will be coping with awful delay at the moment, waiting for tests, waiting for this, waiting for that. My own brother is a chronic schizophrenic. For 25 years I've been waiting for healing. Not yet. But don't we have to say that there is a kind of waiting in the midst of delay where we learn something new of incalculable value that can be learned in no other way? Music has a lot to teach us here because it makes us wait. It's about three more minutes, but we're out of time. Any initial reactions? What grabbed your attention from between the podcast interview or anything else he did? <clears throat> I love this point about um, your first question shouldn't be like whether you like it or not, but what's going on here? I like that he said that. I think that's a helpful way to approach the arts. We've, we've shared that 
in multiple ways throughout the class. Any other reactions? Yeah, Tim. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, I love how he talks about um, just how we can um, experience or we can kind of through music express so much of, of our inner world and music can help us, yeah, express that in ways words can't sometimes, but also can help us experience resolution as well. Um, I loved what he said about tension and resolution. I think if you listen to a lot of Western music, it actually does. Um, does do that. Any other final thoughts? We do need to run. Yeah, Brandon. Absolutely, absolutely. Real quick, next week we'll start new classes up here. Um, Dan, will, Dan and a team of other teachers will be te teaching about the church, um, the doctrine of the church. There's their title. And then downstairs I'll be, me and several others will be teaching on 1 Corinthians, good news for bad Christians. Um, so we're looking forward to, to those classes. Those will last the whole summer. So those will go through August each 12-week 12, 12 classes apiece. We're trying to have the upstairs and downstairs classes be the same amount of time um, so that we're always having new classes at the same time. So, uh, Quick thing, if you want to look more at the arts, um, where did my Echoes of Eden go? Um, Echoes of Eden by Jaron Bars is a great book to read, kind of about Christianity and the arts. I highly recommend therabbitroom.com. That's Andrew Peterson's website. Andrew Peterson, he wrote, Is He Worthy? that we sing often. He's an incredible Christian um, uh, artist. And, and they have like commentary on all different kinds of art on that. There's Christ in pop culture that's similar to Rabbit Room. Fuller has um, helpful movie reviews. And then Brett McCrack and I have found to be helpful as well. His, his movie and music reviews are, are pretty helpful. All Believers. So if you want more of that, I'm happy to share it, but we need to run. So go in peace. Happy Mother's Day. And uh, maybe I'll see you next week downstairs. <laughs>